Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Let's go, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I'm sure I don't have to tell you that the world is full of intriguing mysteries. Cryptid sightings, alien abductions, missing time, spontaneous human combustion, giant skeletons, time traveler tales, occult activity, and a global distribution of ancient pyramids we still don't have a definitive answer on. Even the human mind remains an enigma and seems capable of things Western culture would rather ignore and ridicule than explore and cultivate. Well, an interesting crossroads where these themes of mystery and mind often overlap would be the sessions and readings of prominent clairvoyants who seem to have a talent for tapping into the field or what some would call the Akashic Record and answering those mysterious unanswered questions. And of the wide range of individuals who claimed or demonstrated their mental abilities, few have had the credibility, popularity, or staying power of Edgar Cayce who talked about several such mysteries, including a great deal of detail about the lost history of the advanced civilization of Atlantis. Personally, I had barely scratched the surface of what Edgar Cayce had to say about Atlantis and the lost chapters of the human story until I read the aptly titled book Edgar Cayce's Atlantis by Dr. Greg Little, his wife Dr. Laura Little, and John Van Auken. You might remember Greg being here once before talking about his books with co-author Andrew Collins titled Denisovan Origins, Hybrid Humans, Gobekli Tepe, and the Genesis of the Giants in Ancient America, as well as Path of Souls, The Native American Death Journey, Cygnus, Orion, The Milky Way, Giant Skeletons in Mounds, and The Smithsonian. As for the rest of his resume, Dr. Little is a career psychologist turned explorer and documentary maker. Since 2003, Greg and his wife Laura have been actively searching the Bahamas for archaeological ruins that might be linked to Atlantis, working with the Edgar Cayce organization in its Search for Atlantis project, and the long list of interesting books he's produced throughout this exploration and others would certainly be popular with this audience, but today we're going to focus on Edgar Cayce, his Atlantean readings, and the quest for supporting evidence. So let's do it. The great mystery tackler, Atlantean adventure, and Greg Superior, Dr. Little, welcome back. Holy cow. Well, thank you. Um, 
That's a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I appreciate it very much. And I really want to start this by congratulating you on having a child. Uh, That's fantastic. Um, and I know that it's sort of cutting into your way of life right now. However, you haven't seen what's really going to happen with the change in your way of life, but congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, I'm on the ride now. So yes, you are on a ride. Just got to strap in, I guess. Well, you know, you, you just have to be ready to do whatever whatever comes up. That's the way it is. You never know. Yes. But yes. congratulations. That's wonderful. And okay, we can <laughs> jump right in here. Do you want to start it with a specific question or what do you want me to do with this? Sure. Yes. Um, this is a true pleasure. I loved the book and it made me realize how truly ignorant I was when it came to Edgar Casey. I guess I never dug much deeper than the surface level. But let's give the people some Edgar Casey 101 context before we get into the Atlantis well, stuff. There you go. Some folks, they can be a bit skeptical of clairvoyance in general, especially when it comes to the really hard to verify stuff like claims about Atlantean society. But in Casey's case, we can at least look at some of his more verifiable material to get a sense of his accuracy and credibility in general. And just to read a few sentences from your book, Edgar Cayce is widely acknowledged as the father of the holistic health movement because of the accuracy of his health readings and the effectiveness of the remedies he suggested. As such, Cayce's health suggestions are given a great deal of credibility by medical science, and this recognition has actually been increasing in recent years. Well, I wonder how many people actually knew that, but what else would you tell us about the man and the scope of his abilities in general? Okay, well, first of all, let me tell you where that statement comes from. The Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, J-A-M-A, in an editorial that they wrote on a series of articles about holistic health, what works and what doesn't, they dubbed Casey the father of holistic health in the United States. And the reason is there are many, many professionals not just psychologists like me or mental health people or nurses, but there are loads of physicians that are in the Casey organization that have taken an interest in Edgar Casey's readings really for many, many decades. And they conducted research by following up on Casey's suggestions to various people for remedies for various health disorders. So they followed up. They actually contacted a lot of the people who had tried Casey's remedies, and they found that he's basically around anywhere between 84 to 88 percent accurate. That does not mean that this 12 to 16 percent that is wrong or false. It simply meant that on those they could follow up on, he was pretty darn accurate, 88, uh, roughly 88 percent accurate. So his health readings are only one area. Health readings and Atlantis don't seem to mix. But it all came from a clairvoyant. He really was a clairvoyant. Casey was also called a psychic diagnostician, and that's where the health readings started. So basically, the story of Casey has a lot of pieces to it. He's a very complicated man. Almost everything he said during his psychic readings was written down word for word. And that made Casey have a great advantage over other psychics. 
because we know a lot of psychics said things and people remembered some of what they said, but not every single word that they said during psychic readings was written down. That allows you to go back and look at the accuracy of it. So Casey was born in 1877 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Close to where the Kelly Hopkinsville case occurred with the goblins and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting case. And Casey himself as a child saw little people, saw what could be described as fairy beings or goblins. He witnessed his grandfather die at a very young age. I believe Casey was seven at the time. And his grandfather was thrown from a horse and fell face down into a large, big puddle of water, a deep puddle of water. And his grandfather had been knocked out and literally died. And Edgar, from that moment on, started seeing his dead grandfather appear to him and talk to him. And other dead people started appearing to Casey. This became known in Hopkinsville over time. Now, he was born on a farm. He went to a small schoolhouse, and he was actually bullied because of all this. Edgar was bullied because people said, oh, he talks to the dead. He sees fairy beings and little people and all that. He has imaginary friends and so on. So he was made fun of, and he actually got in a lot of fights when he was a kid because of that. He had this other ability, which actually manifested back then, but it really became profound around age 12 or so. And that ability was this. Edgar supposedly, and I'm saying supposedly here because I have an explanation of this. Edgar supposedly had the ability to fall asleep on any book and he could recall or visualize word for word, page by page, of what was in those books. Now, that's a really incredible thing if you think about it. I don't yeah. know of any case in history where they have shown that a person can fall asleep on a book and then know what's in it. And that literally makes no sense. It makes no sense to me. I don't think it would make sense to any professional. It was never really studied, per se, professionally, although it was tested many, many times. Now, what I believe is that Edgar did fall asleep on the books, but before he fell asleep on the books, Edgar would leaf through them page by page, and we know that actually happened a few times. And he probably had what is called eidetic memory. And an eidetic memory is also, it's popularly known as photographic memory, where you can look at something and then you can visualize it precisely any time after you've looked at it. Eidetic memory occurs mainly in children. It is a bit controversial, but it's pretty clear that when Casey did these various tests, he would look through the book before he would lay it on his head and sleep on it. And again, that's been proven that he knew word for word what was in books. He could memorize things, incredible things. He memorized a 175-page lecture that a guy who was a U.S. representative who had been appointed to be the ambassador to Peru, Grover Cleveland president, he appointed this guy to be ambassador to Peru. The guy visited Hopkinsville, knew Edgar's father, and Edgar's father was bragging about how Edgar could memorize anything. And he said, well, I got this speech with me I just gave. 
And so Edgar's father was allowed to simply read the speech to Edgar two times before Edgar went to sleep. And then the next day, Edgar went in his school in front of all of his classmates. There were over 50 people there, including reporters, the guy who was the House of Representatives member who had been the, the appointed to be ambassador, and several other people there. And Edgar recited the speech from memory, word for word, without making a single mistake. Those are things that these little details like that are things very, very few people know. The reporters wrote a story about it, and Edgar became a real local celebrity. And that's important because later, when Edgar was just under 20 years old, he had become an apprentice for a photographer in Hopkinsville. And while he was there, he couldn't speak anymore. He just, he, all he could do was whisper. He lost his voice. And at that time, remember, he was born in 1877, and there were traveling hypnotists that went around the country and did stage shows. They're also called mesmerists for mesmerism. Edgar went to one of these shows in downtown Hopkinsville, and the hypnotist did his normal stuff, and he said, well, does anybody have something that they want to come up and have cured? And the people in the audience said, take Edgar Casey, take Edgar Casey. he can't speak. And Edgar went up to the stage. He could barely speak above a whisper. I mean, people just couldn't even hear what he was saying. His voice was so low. The hypnotist could hypnotize Edgar instantly. Edgar coughed and could speak normally, which was pretty amazing. However, when the hypnotist took him out of the trance, Edgar immediately lost his voice again. Very interesting. So a local osteopath in Hopkinsville got another hypnotist to come in, in his office, and they hypnotized Edgar again. Same thing happened. The osteopath then hypnotized Edgar. And under hypnosis, the osteopath asked Edgar, why can't you speak? What is wrong? And Edgar said, make a suggestion to the entity. And the suggestion is to increase the blood flow in the neck and throat area. So the osteopath did that. He made a suggestion to Edgar, the entity, increase the blood flow to your throat and your neck area. There were several other people there, and they all wrote the same thing about it, that Edgar's throat turned bright red. He then brought Edgar out of this hypnotic trance. Edgar coughed quite a bit, and he coughed up blood, but he could speak normally. <laughs> Very interesting. That was, his first, that was his first psychic reading. It was on himself. Now, that kind of astonished people, but this osteopath, whose name was Al Lane, Lane got to thinking, my gosh, if he can diagnose his own problem and a cure, maybe he can do that with other people. And Al Lane had been struggling with this in, in problem, stomach problem, indigestion, and, and his stomach was hurting him all the time. And he had tried everything medically, and nothing seemed to work. So... He hypnotized Edgar, and he asked Edgar what was wrong with him and what he could do. And just like he did with himself, Edgar said, 
that the entity, that means that Lane himself, needed to do certain things. And they were pretty simple. And Al Lane followed the advice and was healed. He never had this stomach ailment again. That was the start of Casey's psychic readings. Immediately, word spread in Hopkinsville. And when word spread in Hopkinsville, people started coming in and trying to get Edgar to do a psychic reading on them and whatever health issues that they had. Now, you have to remember that back in the, it was around 19, the year 1900. Back in 1900 or 1899, when Edgar did his first reading, medical science really was not very advanced. I mean, if you had some sort of a wound in your leg and it was serious, they just cut your leg off. That was it. They'd dump alcohol in it, and they'd cut it off. So we just didn't have a lot of medicine at that time. But Edgar's remedies were somewhat unusual. Most of them were common sense, but he used a lot of products that nobody else really even knew what they were. And there's stories about that, too. So he began doing these psychic readings for people around Hopkinsville. Word spread even more. Edgar and his family moved around several times then. He got married. He had some kids. He moved to Selma, Alabama for a while. He came back to Hopkinsville. He lived several other places. And a physician found out about Edgar's ability. And the physician came to Hopkinsville and started interviewing all of his former, I'll call them patients, although they weren't patients the former people that Edgar had cured. And then he began having Edgar do things with his own patients. This physician then called in other physicians. There were six or seven of them. They investigated Edgar under hypnosis. They found that Edgar didn't need to be hypnotized by anyone else. All he had to do was lay down. He had the same procedure that he used. He would loosen his tie. He would undo his shoes. He would lay back on a couch. He would put his hands over his solar plexus, take a few deep breaths, and he was gone just like that. At that moment, someone had to start asking him questions, and they came to call that person a conductor. The person conducted this psychic reading, and they had a list of questions that came in because Edgar was getting letters like crazy already. He wasn't even famous yet, but he was fairly well known. He was getting lots of requests from people. So the physicians decided this is incredible. One of them wrote up a rather long paper, and he presented it at a conference at Caltech in California. There were a couple of other physicians that got extremely interested in this presentation and another one said, hey, I would like to present this paper at a conference next month in Harvard at a medical conference. So the guy said, sure, go ahead. He presented this paper at Harvard University. And the New York Times happened to be at the presentation, as were other newspapers. And the next day, there were these newspaper articles that said, illiterate man becomes doctor under hypnosis. And that is how it started. Other newspapers started writing articles about Edgar, and suddenly he was getting bags of mail 
every day from people all over the country. Now, this was between roughly the year 1899 and 1923 or so. So Ager did nothing but health readings from roughly 1899 to 1923 and did loads of health readings. There are in the organization, the ARE, which is the Association for Research and Enlightenment in Virginia Beach, there are copies of all these health readings in a couple hundred thousand pages. There are just under 15,000 of these health readings are written up and available. They're all online too. They're online in a searchable database for members of the ARE, so that makes it real easy to do research on Casey's health readings. But in 1923, something else happened, and that is a particular man asked Edgar and his family to come up to Dayton, Ohio, and the guy said, I want to pay you to come up here. I want you to spend a couple weeks with us, and I have a lot of questions I want to ask you. And Edgar and his family said, okay. And they went to Dayton, not really knowing what the guy was going to ask about. And he did ask some health questions and so on. But then suddenly he started asking Edgar about a few other things, and out popped reincarnation. Edgar started talking about this man's influences in past lives. And that greatly disturbed Edgar and his entire family because they were fundamentalist Christians, very fundamentalist Christians. Edgar, in fact, was a well-sought-out, highly—I mean, people just loved him as a Sunday school teacher. And I think it's because he had memorized the entire Bible. He knew all the stories word for word, and he was just so popular. Everybody liked to listen to him talk, so his Sunday school classes were packed. So when reincarnation emerged, he and his family had a meeting, and it disturbed them. They knew about the one quote in the Bible that might support, not necessarily reincarnation, but maybe some people having more than one life, but they decided that the readings so far had hurt no one, that it didn't appear that it was hurting anyone, that everyone that had readings was delighted with them. They liked them. Almost everybody that had had a reading said, yes, this really helped me. So their agreement was, we will continue these readings unless someone is hurt by them, and we will then stop. And that didn't happen. And Edgar died in 1945. So he did these health readings for a good 45, 46 years. So that is basically the story of the health readings and how it changed mm. to all this other stuff. So after 1923, they started doing readings that also included people's past lives. Those were called life readings. Astrology emerged in this, and the emergence of astrology came because Edgar talked about electromagnetic influences on how humans develop and how our souls develop. Our soul is electrical or energetic in nature, and it is influenced by the environment in which the soul emerges. So that came into Edgar's readings. So that's kind of a summary of it. In later readings, when these life readings came out, and that is the story of people's past lives, 
What came out was that Edgar would say, you may have lived in Atlantis and you were an engineer in Atlantis and here is what you did. So there's a couple thousand readings. It's actually just under 5% of all the 14,000 some readings that are, that are now documented and available in the ARE. About 4% of those directly involve Atlantis somehow. And there are lots on the ancient world, lots on other aspects of the ancient world, including the building of the pyramid, the people that live in the Pyrenees Mountains, for example, between Spain and Portugal. There's history of them. There's history of the Gobi Desert. He talks a lot about the emergence of man and when the first thoroughly modern humans emerged. Oh, by the way, Edgar said the first thoroughly modern humans emerged around... 200,000 BC or 210,000 BC. And he said that in the 1930s. And of course, in the 1930s, nobody thought that the first modern humans emerged 200 and some thousand years ago. Edgar said that our distant relatives, the things like <laughs> Australopithecus and others, various hominids and homonyms, that they have been around for millions of years. Edgar actually said that our distant relatives have been around for at least 10 million years, and at the time, nobody believed it. Edgar also said that people had been in the Americas for at least 50,000 years, and of course, nobody believed that. And now, we know that's true. There were people in the Americas at least 50,000 years ago, and it's probably far earlier than that. So that's a summary of it. That's how Atlantis emerged in it. Lots of specifics about it. In the 1940s, the ARE members made an attempt to start finding Atlantis. Edgar made a prediction, and this was in the 1930s, that a portion of Atlantis would rise in the Bahamas and it would occur in 1968 or 1968. Well, he said 1968 and 1969. And he said that if a survey was taken near the island of Bimini in the Gulf Stream and you go south, you would find evidence of this ancient civilization. But he didn't say that all of Atlantis was in the Bahamas. Casey said Atlantis is an island empire that extended all the way from the Straits of Gibraltar into the Bahamas and the whole Caribbean that all the islands were part of. And of course, the islands were much bigger in 10,000 BC when Atlantis supposedly disappeared. And some of the Atlanteans also were in the Yucatan Peninsula, parts of Mexico, and in parts of South America. So that's a summary of it. We got involved in the search for Atlantis around uh, 2002 or so, uh, and that really wasn't something that I had planned to do. That just kind of happened like things do. So that's my summary, and mm -hmm. you tell me where you want me to take it from there. I know I talk a lot. <laughs> it's all good. That was a great breakdown of what made the man so special and his backstory. You hit all the points I had taken from the book that I found interesting, except that also apparently this trance state was a bit dangerous for him. I guess on at least one occasion, he was sort of stuck in that state for something like three days, I believe, which is 
pretty wild. Well, another thing, I never told you why he stopped allowing the doctors to investigate him. And that's a story most people don't know. Edgar got furious with all these doctors that were investigating him. You know, they'd crowd around him, put him under hypnosis, and then they would test him. Is this guy faking is what they were thinking. And so they would stick needles in him. In one case, they stuck knitting needles through his mouth out the side of his throat. Edgar didn't appreciate that, but he never moved. The pain didn't come till after he woke up. But they stuck needles through his fingers and in his hands. And the final straw, this is a true story, the final straw for Edgar and his family came when a physician was just convinced that Edgar has to be faking. And he took a pair of pliers and he ripped off Edgar's thumbnail. Oh, my God. And Edgar was laying there in his hypnotic trance, didn't feel it at all. But when they woke him up, he screamed. He immediately needed medical attention because it was bleeding pretty badly. And that was it. They never saw another physician after that. Wow. To be studied by them. He did work with some after that, but not to be studied by them. He was working with physicians to help their patients. But yes, it was dangerous. They had to wake him up when he was at the end of his talking. He would say, we're done for now, or we are through for the moment. And that was the clue that they needed to wake him up. If he didn't have a conductor, sometimes he'd just fall asleep. Mm -hmm. If there was no one there, he'd go into self-induced trance and he would fall asleep. And yes, he might stay asleep for days after that. Man. So yeah, that's the story. <laughs> I like <laughs> it's it. pretty and weird. It is, it is. And to get more into the Atlanta stuff, as you mentioned, he did these readings for people who he realized had previous lives as Atlanteans in some cases. And he also gave a detailed history of the empire, talked about the technology and several really out there things I wasn't expecting. And there are some really interesting details about Atlantean history and society. Help people get a sense of how these things were described. What was Atlantis like and how different was it really? Well, Atlantis was for the time. Okay, so let's give you a time frame. If you know about Plato's Atlantis, Plato tells the story of Atlantis at its ending. And Plato gave a date of roughly 9,600 B.C., so about 11,600 years ago, that was Plato's story. And Plato's tale of it, which was in the Timaeus and the Critias, was really about how Atlantis ended. That's what it was about. Edgar Cayce's story talked about how Atlantis ended, but it also talked about how Atlantis began and all the phases it went through. So that's the big difference here. The ending of Atlantis Casey's story is real similar to Plato's, although it does have more detail in it. So Casey said Atlantis started around 210,000 years ago. And notice I, I set this up by saying that modern humans, thoroughly modern humans, we know began around 200 and some thousand years ago. And according to Casey, that took place in Atlantis, where the first modern humans were. And it was such a dramatic difference 
from all of the other forms that humans had taken up to that time. So you've got Atlantis beginning 200 and some thousand BC years ago. And they developed because they were modern humans, they had a much better brain, better intellect, and more ability. So they began starting what is a, I can't really call it a thoroughly technical civilization, because when people start thinking about Atlantis and Casey, they think computers and planes and submarines and spaceships and all that. No. That is not Edgar Cayce's Atlantis. At their height, when Atlantis reached its height, which according to Cayce was around 28,000 years ago, 28,000 BC, when they reached their height, Atlantis did have roads. They had vehicles, but not gas-powered vehicles like we think of. They used horses. They had elephants, just like Plato said. They had ships. They had some ships that could go underwater, almost like a submarine, but they're extremely primitive. And the descriptions of those to me are almost like the submarines that were built during the Civil War. Most people don't know we had those, but we did, and they were quite dangerous <laughs> to the people in them. They used what are probably best described as blimps or dirigibles. They had them. They used a crystal technology to power these blimps or dirigibles, and they used a crystal technology to communicate over vast distances. That sounds almost esoteric, but it's not. Not when you consider that old radios use crystals, that lasers use crystals, the masers use crystals, and that, in fact, I believe, is how they produce the heat. Casey talked about hot air balloons that they had, and they used crystals to generate heat. The crystals also generated a means of propulsion for these. He even said in one reading that the early Atlanteans used pachyderm skins, or the skins of elephants, which they sewed together into like a dirigible shape so they could put hot air or perhaps helium or hydrogen in them so they could lift it up and use it as a means of transportation. So that is what he said about like people flying, flying machines and so on. They were very warlike in some ways. And Atlantis developed these two different spiritual philosophies. One was the children of the law of one. They believed in one God. They had very deep morals. Casey never really described or said that they followed like the Ten Commandments or anything like that, but they really didn't believe in hurting others. And they were highly spiritual. In fact, they, according to Casey, in their spiritual and religious ceremonies, they got together in large circles and they would focus their mentality on a giant crystal that was in the middle of them. And this was a means or a way for them to communicate with a much higher sphere, a realm of spirituality. That realm of spirituality comes in real relevant at the end of Atlantis too.
because they received messages through that. So the law of one people were fairly primitive. But there was another group of people which he called the sons of Belial or Belial. They're actually mentioned in the Bible. And they believed that humans should take advantage of whatever they could, that they could use any resources, nothing is out of bounds, that the strong should rule, the weak have to listen to the strong. They developed genetic manipulation. Now, I'm not saying that they did the same thing we did, but through some sort of breeding, through humans, primitive humans and animals, they developed what the Casey readings call things, T-H-I-N-G-S. Things are living creatures that they used as slaves or a means of transportation, different kinds of animals, lower grades of humans that they could take advantage of. Yeah, almost like zombies. And I think the term automatons is used. Yes, he used the term automatons because they did not have the same mentality that the thoroughly modern humans did. But Casey said that that was essentially evil, that doing that was essentially evil. But that again is the, that's the sons of Belial. So a split occurred between these two groups. The sons of Belial or sons of Belial became the leaders, the main leaders. The spiritual leaders were the sons of the law of one or the children of the law of one. And they believed there was one God and they believed in the soul and all that. The other side did not. And it's very similar to perhaps to some things today. And they came in conflict many times. Now, Atlantis went through destructions. Obviously, it's not around today. And I started out at 200 and some thousand BC. So as their society developed, they had just what we have now. They had accountants. They had storekeepers. They had people that were teachers. They had people who were physicians. They had psychologists. They had people who gave speeches and lectures they had geologists. Everything we have today, they had in ancient Atlantis. In fact, we know they had those things in the ancient world. There were carpenters and builders and you know woodcutters and all that. There were people that raised food, and it was the same as today. They had all the same things. And we know through history, that's really the way it's always been. It's just we've gotten more technological about it, and as we've gotten more and more people, We've had to develop more and more job occupations. So all those things were present in Atlantis, and they lived their lives a lot, a lot like we do today. That's the basic story. But Atlantis, around 50,000 BC, and throughout the New World and in other parts of the world, what happened, according to the readings, is that the world was overrun by these huge, massive herds of very dangerous creatures. And he talked about them, everything from giant sloths to the woolly mammoths, which we know were in enormous herds in the Americas, to even buffalo would fit into it, saber-toothed tigers, all of those things, and the world was still a dangerous place. And supposedly, there was this meeting held 
the meeting was held in 50,000 BC. And Casey says that people came from all over the world to this meeting, that the world was represented at the meeting at all the different regions, because Atlantis wasn't the entire world. There were other people living everywhere else. So they went to this meeting and they came up with a plan. And the plan was to confine these animals to specific areas, but also to destroy them and to use explosions to destroy the herds, to force them into certain areas, maybe force them over mountainsides or just kill them. And the explosive was going to be a type of gas, probably it was methane gas. He mentioned specifically that the gas pockets were mainly in the Gulf of Mexico and the eastern coast of the United States around the Atlantic. Now, that's weird. When I read all that, I, when I read that years ago, I thought, oh, my God, that's just so bizarre. I just can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. It's beyond, I mean, it's just bizarre. And as we got into this research and we dug more and more, if you actually read geological research, you'll see that there are all along the Gulf Coast and in the Caribbean, on both sides of Florida and up the eastern coast of America, there are these large holes in the ocean bed. And if you read about the research, these giant holes in the ocean bed, they've said, were initially giant methane pockets that burst 50 to 100,000 years ago. Hmm. They don't know the exact date, but 50,000 years ago. And all of that is relatively new research. Of course, none of that research was around when Casey came up with this. So, okay, okay, I scratch my head and say, that's interesting. There is some evidence of that. So I've just tried to give a bit of history of it. Let me just go through two more bits of the history, and then we'll get into where Atlantis was in the search for it. So sure. 50,000 BC, when they decided to do this, according to the Casey readings, in the islands, all those islands in the Caribbean, you know, the Bahamas is thousands of tiny islands. And if you go 50 miles east from roughly Miami and Fort Lauderdale, you will hit what is called the Little Bahama Bank. And then if you go a little further, you hit the Great Bahama Bank. And it's a big shallow area with thousands and thousands of islands that are above the surface. But the bank itself in most of those areas, in some areas, it's only a few feet deep, but it's generally no more than 30 or 40 feet deep anywhere. In fact, you really can't go across it in large boats because you'll ground yourself. There's just no way to do it. And in small boats that we used, we had a boat that had a one-foot draft, and there were places that we couldn't go in the Great Bahama Bank because the water's only a foot deep. And our propeller would go down a little more than a foot, so it was dangerous to do it. Anyway, Casey said that in 50,000 BC, when they initiated this plan and they ignited these underwater gas holes or these giant pockets of gas, that it caused massive earthquakes and explosions and it broke up the main islands of Atlantis and made five main islands along with lots of small ones. So that was in 50,000 BC. 
He then said that that kind of threw the Atlanteans back. It threw them back, but they rebuilt because they were a maritime culture. They traded all over the world. They actually, around 28,000 BC, became a little more than traders and started trying to conquer different areas of the world. And in 28,000 BC, a series of earthquakes occurred, and it broke those five major islands up into only a few large islands, which you would see in the Caribbean today, like Cuba, you would see Haiti, you would see Puerto Rico, Andros Island in the Bahamas, and then there's a lot of other smaller islands. So he said it broke it up into only a few large islands and then loads of small islands. That was in 28,000 BC, the second destruction of Atlantis. The final destruction of Atlantis, according to Casey, occurred in 10,000 BC. The Atlanteans were given a message, or they had some outer space entity, some alien, tell them that something's coming from space and Atlantis is about to be destroyed. Your area is going to be hit. So they were told this before 10,000 BC. It's called in the readings, we receive messages from the outer spheres. And that's how that crystal that I talked about, by the way, it was called the Tui, T-U-A-O-I, Tui stone, a very large multifaceted crystal. But they got this information and the priests of Atlantis, the children of the Law of One, were tasked with writing a history of Atlantis, gathering up artifacts, and then finding three places around the earth, three where they could take all of these artifacts and this written history of Atlantis and protect it so that it would last through this destruction, whatever whatever was going to occur. And almost everybody knows of them as the Hall of Records. But there are actually three Hall of Records. One of them, the famous one, is in Egypt under the right paw of the Sphinx in a chamber about 30 to 40 feet down. That is according to the Casey readings. That's the one a lot of people have looked for. There is another hall of records in what Casey said was the Yucatan, which he meant the entire Yucatan Peninsula. And he said initially it was somewhere in the Yucatan, but then it was moved later. That spot we know today is Piedras Negras, Guatemala. We can talk about that mainly maybe later. And the third place where the third Hall of Records was, was a temple that was in the Bahamas. And the Casey readings were very clear about it, that that temple was underwater, under the slime of ages. And Casey recommended, again, a search down the Gulf Stream from Bimini. Uh, And there is a location about 30 miles down where we believe that's where it probably was. So there's these three Hall of Records. Lots of people have been involved in the search for them, including us. So that's kind of the history. That's how it began. Uh, (laughs) That's the three destructions, and it leads to the three Hall of Records. Amazing. Yes, you've definitely talked about this before and know how to do it clearly and methodically. And while we're still in this first hour, let's get into a little bit more of you and your wife's personal 
contribution to all this because you've been very involved. You know, you've gone to these areas, you've gotten certified as a scuba diver, and you really have been pretty instrumental in pushing the needle forward and verifying some of this, trying to locate these places. And it's pretty impressive stuff to do in a lifetime on top of everything else you've done. Well, I think if you live long enough and if you're successful at what you do, you have more than one career. Mm -hmm. And I've kept up with my main career. I'm best known in the field of criminal justice. That's where I'm best known in criminal psychology, criminal treatment. And I've kept up with that, but I've had other careers too. I was involved a lot in archaeology. I know you know I've written a lot about Indian mounds. That's pretty much mainstream archaeology and have an encyclopedia in mounds. But it was just another phase. And I try to keep up with all the other stuff. So you just got to live long enough. You have to have the means to do it. That's one big part of it. We self-funded our research and all this. We got involved with the ARE because of the ancient mysteries portion of it. Didn't have anything to do with any of the other stuff. In fact, I initially had no interest whatsoever in Casey's ideas about the ancient world. That happened quite by happenstance and chance. And because back in 2000, I was asked by one of the directors of the ARE, and at that time we were simply members of the ARE. One of the directors knew my interest in Indian mounds, that I had written some books on mounds and was involved in doing an encyclopedia of mounds. And he said, hey, why don't you take a look at Casey's readings on Indian mounds and write up whether or not you think it's accurate? And I said, what do you mean? (laughs) Casey wrote about or talked about Indian mounds. And he said, yeah, it's in. He talked about them in quite a few readings. That is how I got into Edgar Casey's ideas about the ancient world. And again, that was in the year 2000. So that was actually quite a while ago. So Casey did do, it's like 58 readings that mention Indian mounds somehow. And in the course of those readings, I had to look at other things too. And that was Casey talked a lot about the habitation of the Americas, about people coming in to North and South America at different times. And he was he was giving these readings in the 1930s when mainstream archaeology's entire idea, their truth, was that the Americas became inhabited around 9600 BC when hordes of nomads came in at the end of the last ice age from Siberia. And within a few thousand years, those hordes of nomads occupied all of North America, Central America, and South America. That was what mainstream archaeology said. And Edgar Cayce, while he said lots of people came in around 10,000 BC, he gave these alternative histories of all these other migrations into the Americas. And that was astonishing to me. And he talked about how the Vikings had come in and how they, they made occupations in Canada. And at the time, it was not accepted back then that the Vikings actually had reached the Americas. It was suggested and believed by the Norse that the Vikings had gotten here, but mainstream archaeology certainly didn't accept it. 
So I looked into Casey's mound stuff, and that led to us getting involved in all of his ancient mystery stuff. My wife and I were then asked by the ARE if we would edit a monthly newsletter called Ancient Mysteries for the ARE, which we did for several years. And as we edited that newsletter, it was usually a four to eight page newsletter, and we kept up with all the current stuff and archaeology in it. I mean, we really read all the current archaeological literature then. And we also looked at a lot of Casey's readings on it, which we still haven't read all of them. And that led to more books. And it led me to helping and assisting the ARE with some of their conferences. They have a very large conference every year called Ancient Mysteries. In fact, I changed the name of it to Ancient Mysteries from the Egypt Conference. It used to just be the Egypt Conference. But I wanted them to expand it to all ancient mysteries, which we did. And we brought in speakers from all over the place, including a fellow by the name of Andrew Collins from England. And Andrew had written a book on Atlantis. And in that book, he had several pictures that he showed at the conference of these areas in the Bahamas where things had supposedly been found by pilots. One of them is a gigantic triple ring stone circle in shallow water in the Bahamas? Let me say that again. A gigantic triple ring stone circle underwater in the Bahamas. Now <laughs> that, if it was real, would be incredible. And another one that he showed that a pilot took was what looked like the letter E, A, B, C, D, E. It looked just like the letter E underwater. So flying over it, you look down, it's like, good God, there's a giant letter E underwater. So you had that, that giant circle, which looked like it had three rings of huge stones sticking up vertically, and that E. And I vividly recall my wife and I were together watching Andrew Collins give this presentation and I turned to my wife and said, why hasn't anybody found that? If it's really there, it should be easy to find. And she said, yes. Yeah. She said, I don't know. It should have been found. And I said, let's go find that thing. And hmm. that's how it started. So there's nobody else going to fund that. There's nobody else going to, you know, we're not going to write a grant up, grant up for it or anything else. So that's how it started. It wasn't about searching for Atlantis. It wasn't about searching underwater in the Bahamas looking for archaeological ruins or anything else. It was all about trying to solve those two mysteries. What in the world is this giant stone circle that supposedly has three rings of stones around it? And what is this E? And they're both found off of Andros Island. It took us a while. And I found out at that time how poor research had been up to then by people trying to find these. I did find that someone had spent $30,000 flying around Andros Island everywhere, trying and in the island, in the estuaries of the island. Now, Andros is the largest of the Bahama Islands. It's 104 miles long, 30 miles wide. But when the tide is high, it has tidal flows all over the place. 
so it cuts the island into literally hundreds of other islands. Almost nobody goes to Andros. It's not a tourist destination, and it's almost totally uninhabited and unexplored. It is a mystery, and we just got fascinated with Andros. But that's how it started. It took us a while to get together the logistics, which we pulled together. I really dislike scuba diving intensely. That mm-hmm. That's bizarre. And the only reason I got certified in scuba diving was for all this. I realized I may have to scuba dive to really see all this, to get down and look at it. So that is why I got certified to scuba dive, not realizing that within a couple years after that, I would do about 200 dives alone, alone dives, looking at sites all over the place in the Bahamas. But that's how it started. It was an accident. It takes a few minutes to explain what happened and how we really got into all of it. Do you want me to go ahead with that? Uh, Yeah, let's call out the first hour right there. And I guess I just want to fire off a quick one to you and ask, has there ever been a person before or since Edgar Cayce that you think could come close to his abilities or accuracies, or was he truly unique? Well, he is unique. And the reason I suspect somebody, you know, there are some people that have been accurate. Andrew Collins is a good one to ask about that. Andrew believes that he knows quite a, he uses psychics quite a bit in some of his research. And he says they're not always accurate, but they're 75 to 80% accurate. And there's usually bits of truth in everything they say. I think that there have been some psychics that truly did tap into something real. Casey's unique, though, in that he wanted it all written down so it could be looked at and verified, because in the beginning, Casey himself did not know what this was all about. And if it hurt anybody, he intended to quit. Edgar Casey's profession was a photographer. That's what he became. And he became an award-winning photographer. And you can see some of his photographs if you search around. He was a very good photographer. And back in those days, photography was a highly specialized skill. And a good photographer could make a good living at it. So that's what he did. He did not charge for readings, although people would sometimes give him a dollar or send in a dollar. He sent money back often. If he couldn't do a reading, he would send money back. And that's basically what killed him. He got so many, when he became famous, He got thousands and thousands of requests for readings, and the readings that he did on himself, Edgar did readings on himself and his health. Remember, he died in 1945. Well, the last five years, the readings told him, you are doing too many readings. You're going to kill yourself. You have all these issues. And they told him he needed to do one reading a day, no more. Well, Edgar was doing four, five, six, seven, more than 10 a day. And he said, I can't just do one. All these people are begging for help. And he had bags and bags of physical mail. And it got to the point to where they couldn't even read all of it. Edgar would reach his hand down into the bag. And he would just feel around. And if a letter felt important, he would pull it out. And that's how he sometimes, toward the end in particular, chose what reading he would give. 
almost randomly, but strictly through intuition. But yes, he was unique in that he combined all these things, and there is a lot of evidence, scientific evidence, validating it. I can take a psychic like Emanuel Swedenborg, who I've written about. There is an element in all this, in all psychics, I call the trickster element. Yeah. The trickster Carl Jung talked about. And the trickster is a Native American creature that is there to create chaos. But a trickster also gives truth. So you're always balancing between what is true and what is misleading you. And I think the same thing has happened in all this Atlantis research. I can forgive the skeptics out there who have actually lied about what is found there because most of the skeptics believe in the mainstream and the mainstream says Atlantis could not have existed. None of this could have really happened. Therefore, it did not happen. And therefore, any research claiming it's true has to be fraudulent. That is their belief system. And that's what they're going with. It's all about beliefs there. Everything in this is about beliefs. Very few people are being driven by what the facts are or what the research shows. Uh. So we try and, and do that. I can say quite honestly, nothing that we have found that dates to Atlantis, which would be one area, is definitive. We can't definitively prove Atlantis existed. It has been definitively proven that people were in the Americas when Edgar Cayce said they were, and lots of other things Cayce said have been definitively proven, but none of that means that Edgar Cayce's stuff is true. Right. So there you go. <laughs> the mystery continues. And yes. Man, I had a lot of fun. You definitely know your stuff, and you're in so many different areas that I'm also interested in, so it's always fun to talk to you. I saw the title and the description of this new book coming out next year, and I really, really am excited to be able to talk to you about that when the time is right. Sounds definitely right up our alley around here. In the meantime, are there any links or info you'd like to leave people with in terms of following up or checking out any of your other work? Well, I can be found on apmagazine.info. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook or Google my full name, Gregory L. Stick that initial in little, Gregory L. Little, and you can find me pretty quickly that way. I'll be, um, I'll pop right up. Yes, there's too many Greg Littles out there, I discovered. Yes, there so. are. Well, if you just put Greg Little in, you'll find a football player. Yes. For some reason, anybody, any football player, even though they play only one or two years, You'll find them always at the top. But if you put in my full name, I'll pop up and you'll see me right away. There'll yes. be a My picture will be there, a little knowledge bar is there. Right on. Well, I'll definitely put the L initial in the title here just to keep people reminded because we don't want some NFL player cramping your style. <laughs> <laughs> but this has been a lot of fun, a real pleasure. I'm glad we could talk again and I look forward to next time. But in the meantime, do take care and best of luck out there. Thank you, and you have fun with a new baby, man. Ah, appreciate that. And boom goes the dynamite, good people. How about it? <laughs> Definitely has to be an unexpected subject matter today, right? 
It was even unexpected for me because I initially got in touch with Dr. Little to ask him about coming on to talk about his books, Grand Illusions, The Spectral Reality, Underlying Sexual UFO Abductions, Crashed Saucers, Afterlife Experiences, Sacred Ancient Ritual Sites and Other Enigmas, and Light Quest, Your Guide to Seeing and Interacting with UFOs, Mysterious Lights, and Plasma Intelligences as well as the archetype experience resolving the UFO mystery and the riddle of biblical prophecy using Jung's concept of synchronicity. If you remember, we got into this territory a little bit last time, but these three books, the holy trinity of Greg Little's paranormal repertoire, is kind of what I wanted to talk about. And he told me he's trying not to wade too far into paranormal territory until his new book comes out this summer, which is going to be called Origins of the Gods, Quisum Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. You know, I'm giddy just thinking about it, but <laughs> the Casey Atlantis stuff was what he had left in the tank, and I thought, sure, why not? And I'm glad we did it, because I didn't even know a third of what I learned getting ready for this. I usually hear about the unknowable stuff and the apocalyptic prophecy, but the biggest part of Casey's work is healing, and I knew it was in the mix, but not to that degree, and not with such a high rate of accuracy. So to me, this was really interesting, and fun, and light. And don't worry, we got plenty of dark and heavy stuff coming in the next few interviews. But let Dr. Little know if you liked this one. I definitely want to make sure we get to talk about that next book, and it helps if he knows that we have people listening who like hearing from him at Dr. Greg Little 2 on Twitter, just to make it easy for you. But I hope you dug it. If Casey was right about so many verifiable things, maybe we should give him at least half credit on the unknowable Atlantis stuff. The automaton thing was quite strange. I said zombies because that's what he says in the heading for that section in the book. But it's also kind of like a hermunculus kind of thing because I think of a zombie, of course, generally as reanimated. Someone that was alive and is no longer or is in this weird limbo state, but not an empty vessel. You know, this didn't sound like reusing the dead. It sounded like creating empty vessels from the ground up. Some sort of lab-made people or husks, something like that. And the Sons of Baal also does equate to the cult of Baal, or Baal, of course, it's actually in the book, it's listed in a series of other associated names, and I wasn't going to jump in just to say that, but I figured it would raise a few eyebrows out there. It's a tale as old as time, and altruistic, peaceful people are infiltrated by a cabal united by the adoration of a dark force, and they steamroll everything, break the civilization, and it implodes on itself. I don't know how many times that has literally happened, but... It's thematically a pretty dependable archetype, if you ask me. It's talked about in all kinds of other contexts, too, like Tataria, of course, and mud floods and plasma apocalypse resets and all the rest of it. And if it's in any way true, where do you think we would be in that cycle? Where do you think the politicians and the Silicon Valley sorcerers and the people at the forefront of technology are pushing us? Just a thought. Anyway... In higher side news, everything is going really well. Site updates seem to be well received. Someone added a San Diego meetup to the calendar, November 24th. 
the We Swear We're Not Crazy cocktail hour at Livewire. I don't know if I'm going to make it because it's the night before Thanksgiving, and in our circle, Thanksgiving is being hosted at my place. But I think it's the only new one on the books since the last episode just a couple days ago, but things are happening in Denver, Nashville, Raleigh, Joplin, Sweden, and Brazil. Find the tribe, people. It is time. And if you value the Higher Side Chats, get yourself a Plus membership, an extra hour of every show, 10 years of archives, the THC music that people seem to like so much is also available for Plus members. A few bonus episodes, the joint session shows, you've heard it all before. But as good as you think the first hour is, the nature of conversation itself suggests that the second hour is usually going to be deeper and richer. And it's also where I get to ask my really weird questions. So sign up at thehiresidechats.com. I could really use it. Each new membership really makes having a new baby a little less stressful. I try to make it easy for you. If you want to use PayPal, you can sign up through Patreon. If you want to use crypto or even mail in a check, I'll take it any way you give it. Just look down in the show notes for some really easy links to use. You do get a dedicated RSS feed. It does work with most podcast apps. You don't really have to change the way you listen once you configure it, and it only takes a couple of minutes. But in this Plus show, we got into the rest of Dr. Little's exploration stories, another example of state-sponsored geological fraud, the strangely uncurious professionals in the field, Machine Gun Pyramid Mounts, The Three Halls of Records, Otherworldly Crystal Contact, all kinds of fun stuff. I was trying not to say too much about that last bullet point because I think that does get into the thesis of the new book, so we danced around it. But a wild ride indeed, and I look forward to talking to Dr. Little again when the new book comes out, but I like throwing really unexpected things at you, and so I think this qualifies. It's fun for me. So that's it for today. I've done my part. Your move, history hiders, Atlantean survivors, and Akashic record readers. Your fucking move. From space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. Waking up the masses is hard. Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now I'm not asleep, don't obey the elite Gotta be to the head Now I start to wonder, now we're not the sheep That they bred us to be Gotta be to the head Now we start to wonder, now we start to wonder Set me straight I encourage you to go When you see the saucers glow One by one we'll all end up awake Enlightening the masses is hard Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now we're not asleep Don't obey the elite Gotta be to the head Now we start to wonder No, we're not the sheep that they Now we start to wonder Now we start to wonder Now we start to wonder
Some starts to die Cabal's hate 